Our scripture lesson this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 20. Listen for the word of God for us this day. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up and placed by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not yet understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, She turned, and she said to him in Hebrew, Rabunai, which means teacher, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Holy Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be receptive to thee. O God, our strength and our redeemer, we pray. Amen. In 1964, a little book shook the world of academic theology. It gave permission for a whole new style of Christian writing and preaching. Lighter, closer to the way that scripture is creatively, even cleverly composed. The book was simply called The Humor of Christ. Too many readers, the author wrote, Um, think that that the idea that Christ is humorous is surprising or even mildly shocking. Mildly shocking. Far be it from me to upset a lovely morning or upend our liturgical response to a serious story but I'm kind of liking the idea this morning of being mildly shocking. 
I like the idea of trying to get you and myself out from behind the fig leaf of easy religion or of hard debates about the challenges of life that so dominate our attention these days. At least long enough for you to get the joke that God is playing on us this Easter day. The joke, you ask? How so? Well, I don't mean the kind of joke that a comedian uses in a stand-up routine. I don't mean the kind of humor that sets the world at arm length from us as though we're above it all, nor do I need to have a zombie joke to bring to you the shock of, resu of resurrection. I'm actually meaning that despite all of the preparations that go into this beautiful day and all the grandeur and glory that comes with it and all the ways that we want this day to make a difference in how you live tomorrow, there are still ironic, even gleeful twists in the story we tell today So let's pay attention to them. Those mildly shocking twists. And they all add up to a simple conclusion. That despite all that we have made of Easter, and despite all of the singing and shouting that we do, the resurrection that we remember today arrives more with a whisper, with a simple recognition in a breath that promises peace. In response to our bumbling, silly, human ways, the maker of all that is gives a loving, knowing, healing chuckle. But I've gotten ahead of myself. I've taken you to the destination before I've even started down the road. So I, I want us to get there a little bit more slowly so we can see some of the twists and stumbles and peculiarities along the path of our sweet arrival and to see what they might teach us. So let me pick up the story where we started in the Gospel of John, read in your hearing this morning. It begins just before that passage, right after the horror of execution. Jesus is dead. The one we followed, the one we promised commitment to, the one in whom we found healing and meaning he was made a criminal. He was bloodied, shamed, nailed to a cross and mocked. He was brutally and publicly killed at the hands of jealous, self-protecting, corrupt power. Welcome to the world. And then comes the first twist in our story. A stranger comes to those same people in power and asks for his body. We pass that part of the story by, but we shouldn't. 
John calls him a secret follower. So we can assume that this stranger wasn't even known to the public followers of Jesus. Like someone showing up at the funeral and telling you that she is the deceased, the, the secret daughter of the deceased, and she's come to help. Who is this Joseph of Arimathea who's come to take his body? No one really knows. And what about this tomb that they found? They grabbed it just because it was nearby where he was crucified and happened to be opened. Thank God this Joseph was smart enough to get this done so at least a little respect could be given to his body. Now, you'd think that the single most important event in the history of God's relationship with our world would have been better organized. Nicodemus also came by to help, and we shouldn't forget about him either. He came to see Jesus at night earlier, also to stay out of the public eye, but he steps up now, risking his reputation to help. So here we are. All of the public followers of Jesus, his posse, his PR team, his spokespeople, and his advocates, all went running and hiding. It was two of the quieter, unexpected followers who stepped up to do what needed to be done. I'll leave the lesson of that to you to figure out, except to say that you never know who's going to do what's right. We should never count people out too soon. And then, of course, there was Mary. Mary from Magdala. Another unexpected character in this story, but steady and strong. In other Gospels, we're told that after the Sabbath, Mary came with a couple of other women carrying more preparations for the body to complete what Nicodemus had started. But even here, there's a funny twist, because Mary has no way to remove the stone. She has no way to get in the tomb. She has no idea, but she goes anyway. And according to John, it's a good thing she did, even without a plan. For the stone is already rolled away when she gets there. Unbelievable. Someone strong enough to do the job knew that she was coming. And so to the opening to the tomb she goes. But of course, the joke's on her. For it seems that the rock wasn't rolled away for her because the body is gone. The body is gone. And she runs to tell Peter and John that it's been stolen. Second joke of the day. First, that strangers are the heroes. Second, that Mary thought the body had been stolen when we know better. We spend a lot of time talking about what this story means and what God is doing in it. In fact, we have over 2,000 years of talking about that. But have you ever noticed that the story itself doesn't do that so much. This, we don't 
have God's point of view. What happened with Jesus in that tomb is never actually described. We're only told how Mary and then Peter and John and then others experienced what happened in the tomb. We guess, we surmise the rest of it from what happens next, from how what happens changes their lives, from how Jesus keeps returning and showing up even today, even this morning. 1900 years after the events we read about today, a Danish theologian named Soren Kierkegaard wrote that if Jesus is truly raised from the dead, then his first century followers had no more privileged access to him than we have to him today. And he was surely right. They knew no more about Jesus than we know now. Stumbling and learning then, just as we stumble and learn today. And so here comes a third curiosity of the day, with almost a kind of keystone cops sort of scene, as Peter and the other disciple, who is not named, but we assume is John, race each other to the tomb. Peter, who is the leader with status, can't catch up. And the unnamed disciple gets there first, but he's afraid to go in. So he goes to the edge. He peers in. He peeks. He sees burial clothes, but no body, confirming what Mary saw. No body. Peter gets there, and Peter does go in. Peter gets a certain angle of view so he can see another set of the bands of cloth carefully rolled up over here, where the others carefully rolled up over there. Why this kind of tiny detail? I mean, this is resurrection for God's sake. This is death overcome. This is the vindication of the creator of all things. This is hope restored and salvation wrought. I imagine broken pieces of rock lying all over. I imagine black scars on the stones, on the slabs inside from the explosion of hot light from resurrection. I imagine rays of light shouting out of the tomb up to the top of the mountain where Jesus goes to proclaim that he is alive so all people can see. But instead, we have three people in the Gospel of John tiptoeing in to a silent, empty tomb with bands of cloth in a couple of places for reasons we don't yet know. No signs of bursting forth. No signs of great glory. Just Jesus, nowhere to be found. We know what happened. They did not. And so there's something there too for us, don't you think? Because sometimes we too experience the resurrection long before we understand that it is resurrection that we're experiencing. 
you might experience resurrection like Peter and John, seeing something important and then running off, maybe to hide again, maybe to talk to other people, maybe to hunt down the truth of it in some other way. Or you might experience resurrection like Mary, who stays with it, who waits there, and who is, in the end, closer to the truth of it than was Peter. Mary simply sits and weeps. What do you think she's weeping for? For the loss of what she loved? For her inability to fix it? For worry about what's going to happen now? For fear of what the powerful people will be up to next? Or maybe she is just weeping for the weight of the world. But through her tears, she looks again. Through her tears, she looks again. And John says that there were two angels where the body of Jesus should have been. And John says that they asked her a question. Why are you crying? They don't tell her what's going on. They don't tell her where to go or what to do. They just ask that question. Why are you crying? As if they didn't know. Read the Gospels and watch how Jesus responds to people. Rarely does Jesus first ask, why aren't you doing this? Or why are you doing that? Or why aren't you thinking this or believing that or voting this way or joining that church or leaving that church? He more often asks the question that the angels asked Mary with a gentle touch. Why are you weeping? Where does it hurt? What do you need? For what do you thirst? Where are you eating tonight? And he takes what we're feeling and thinking about our own lives and he lifts it all up and he moves us toward deeper, fuller things. Resurrection is personal. The Holy Spirit is curious, interested, reaching for us. Why are you crying? The angels ask Mary, and she tells them. And then she turns and sees another. This one, though not an angel, this one she thinks is the gardener. All right, don't let that pass. You're supposed to laugh. Not at her, but at the whole situation. The risen Christ mistaken for a gardener, as if the writer of the Gospel of John is saying to us, get the joke. 
God comes as God chooses, even when we miss it. We miss Christ once, and we miss Christ again, and then again, but he will wait. He asks us why we're weeping. He lets us get it wrong, and he lets us try again without judging us. Until at some point, if only for an instant, we get it. And we recognize him in a place where we had not been looking. Mary. He says her name with the light laughter of love. And she recognizes him for who he is. Mary. Or Peter. Or Salome. Mike, Helen, Eric, Leah, Tommy, Ilona, Hassan, Tanika, George, Christine, Jose, Rachel, Kofi. Every name that has ever been uttered everywhere and anywhere in the world, this gardener speaks. How often do we just need to hear our name spoken with love to return to ourselves and to realize that we are not alone? That is how we first experience Christ's resurrection. And so the sweet, surprising, mildly shocking truth of Easter is this, that God's gift of healing and hope and gratitude and perspective and joy and energy for tomorrow and trust in goodness and love for other people, and willingness to forgive, and desire for the truth, and peace in your heart, and all that God wants to give you in the light of resurrection, all of that begins for you as it does for Mary, through all the twists and turns that get us here, with a simple, loving voice speaking in your heart, saying your name too. Amen.